0: Welcome to the MHICast, a show where we talk to the industry's best minds to uncover their supply chain stories. We explore real-world case studies and get unique perspectives on key trends and emerging technologies from every corner of the material handling, logistics and supply chain space. Reshoring has become a prominent term in recent years signifying a major shift in the business world. It refers to the strategic decision made by companies to relocate their manufacturing services or other business operations back to their home country, reversing the previous trend of offshoring or outsourcing. This movement has various drivers and implications, reshaping industries and impacting economies, In this discussion we will explore the concept of reshoring, the motivations behind it, and the potential benefits and challenges it presents. Joining me today is Patrick Vanden Bosch, a partner with the global management consulting company Kearney, and Kathy Fulton, Executive Director at American Logistics Aid Network, an industry-wide organization that exists to provide supply chain assistance to disaster relief organizations and other nonprofits. Patrick, thanks for joining us. I read you were trying to understand reshoring way back in 2013. How did it start?
1: Well, when we started this, we were starting to see a lot of mentions in the press and trade magazines about reshoring. But at the same time, we work with a lot of global companies and we weren't quite hearing the same kind of conversations in the boardrooms or we weren't really also hearing it in analyst calls. So we wondered, well, what's really going on? Is this just one big PR gimmick, or is there actually some movement underneath of this? And that's when we started this uh, reshoring index. To be honest, for the first seven years, uh, there wasn't a ton to report on, but the last two, three years, it's really, really been active.
0: Is it because of geopolitical issues that reshoring started rising in the last two years?
1: Well, you would expect that geopolitical issues are are a big factor of this. But interestingly, when we asked CEOs why they were looking into reshoring to begin with, um, that wasn't even part of the top five. So the whole US-China tension thing, uh, yes, of course, it's in the back of people's minds. But if you think about how you make a decision around reshoring, that's a at a minimum 10, 15-year time horizon decision. And all this stuff around geopolitical tensions they tend to sort of fade out when you look at that long of a timeline. And you do have to look at that kind of a timeline because you have to depreciate the massive capital that you're going to have to invest in. So in a way it makes sense, but yes, it is a little bit counterintuitive because everything you read about the US-China tensions.
0: Kathy, as someone who works extensively in the area of disaster relief, what factors do you believe will be the most significant drivers for reshoring?
2: Yeah. So reshoring is actually a really fascinating topic when you think about what does it mean for disasters? Um, so even pre pandemic, there was a lot of move towards reshoring just because of trade policy, right? Especially when you think about this North America, United States centric trade policies that were affecting trade with Asia. Um, The pandemic, when we started to see um, shutdowns and lockdowns uh, in Asia, I I think made a lot of businesses here in North America really rethink their strategy. Uh, Do they need to manufacture? Is it worth the risk to have their factories overseas if they can't get the product, right? If the cost is a lot lower, but they can't get the product because of this risk, it, they really needed to rethink their supply chain. So, reshoring all of all of that industry. I I don't think we have the skills. I don't think we have the willpower to uh, to pay the wages right that most people are going to expect from from those types of jobs. Um, but I think we will see a shift. So, what do you think are
0: the top reasons for reshoring to start picking up?
1: When we surveyed a CEOs, the latest edition, um, the top reasons were actually first reduced lead times. So in other words, become more responsive to the customer or the consumer in some cases. And if you think about it, uh, during COVID, we all got used to uh, the one-day delivery from Amazon. I mean, I'll be honest, I haven't seen the inside of a a grocery store since COVID. So we're all used to this fast, responsive uh, supply chain, and that starts to also go beyond just consumer that goes to companies as well so reducing lead times has been one big driver Uh, the other one is number two was uh, increasing innovation which is obviously the best model you can think of to continue to grow that is to continue innovating and on long supply chains with partners across continents 12 hours away that's a little bit more cumbersome than doing it with people in your backyard so to speak um, then reducing logistics, um, in other words, obviously that was prompted by the huge uh, increases in container rates we saw. Um, but just in general, there's also a sustainability element to it, and that's actually the fourth major reason, and that is the the whole lowering carbon footprint piece, right? So as I said, geopolitical tensions were not mentioned. That's because the time horizon that you're looking at for a, a, a re- repayment of your investment. Um, on that time horizon, politically driven elements sort of tend to be regarded much less.
0: Interesting. Kathy, how do you weigh the advantages like supply chain certainty and transportation flexibility against the risks when deciding between reshoring and offshoring in your supply chain strategy?
2: Reshoring has its advantages in that you have shorter lead times on your transportation. There are skilled workforces uh, in Mexico, in Canada, in South America, certainly where you know these jobs can shift to. So I think the, the advantages are assurity of supply, right? Um, having assurance that um, you don't have to wait on an ocean container, Uh, you have much more flexibility with your your transportation, you have much more visibility. It's a whole lot easier to to take a trip from one state to the next than it is to fly overseas to check on your factories. We're seeing those advantages. For for me, it's about the risk. How much risk do you want to take on? How much are you willing to concentrate uh, in a particular location, but also the advantage that that provides you?
0: Patrick, Do you think there's specific industries that are more suited to reshoring than others?
2: Well, in general, I'd say
1: it's less about industries when it comes to reshoring. It's more about strategically how individual companies think about risk and how they position themselves in the market. Now, having said that, uh, obviously, some industries do get more pull from the government. For instance, all the critical products like PPE and now more recently solar panels. uh, electric vehicles and batteries, semiconductors, and so on and so on. They get a lot of attention and actually some funding from the government. Um, even before that, there was, um, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the Walmart's pledge back in 2021, where they said that they would spend an additional 350 billion on items that were either made grown or assembled in the U S and they focused on six priority categories, plastics, textiles, small electrical appliances, processed foods, pharmaceuticals and medical supplies. And so, yeah, those industries, of course, also saw suddenly a lot of attention to reshoring. But if anything, the uh, the survey that we've done and have been doing for a decade as part of this annual reshoring index has shown that specifically last year, 96% of CEOs are evaluating reshoring their operations or they've decided to reshore or they have already reshored. And that's across industry. So it's not really an industry play, I would say
0: so when ceos make long-term reshoring decisions that require substantial capital investments what key factors and considerations do they take into account and how have these factors shifted in importance over time
1: we've been looking at this as part of this annual reshoring index for a decade now and the first seven eight years the story was kind of meh nothing much happening. (laughs) But in the last two years, uh, we've really seen an an unprecedented uptick in US domestic manufacturing gross output. And that's the measure we look at, because that's how much product we make here in the US. And that number uh, has gone up by 22% since the COVID days. We also, of course, continue to import more, because the total import from the 14 Asian low-cost countries that we've been looking at for this past decade actually went above $1 trillion for the first time. But relatively speaking, this U.S. domestic manufacturing gross output has actually started to increase faster than those imports. And it's that ratio that we've been looking at to determine whether reshoring was happening or not. Whatever we make here grows faster than what we import, then we can probably say that there's some measure of reshoring going on, and that's exactly what we've been seeing Uh, for the last two years now. Now, of course, you you hear also a lot more companies talk about it and not so much in interviews or trade magazines, but actually also in analyst calls. And then lastly, uh, they're putting their money where their mouth is because in 2022, the total investments in new manufacturing plants and in upgrading, updating, or automating equipment amounted to an unseen $850 billion. And that's capacity that will be put to use. So I I think there's going to be more reshoring as we go on.
0: So how does that $850 billion investment in new plants and equipment compare to the domestic manufacturing gross output? And why is that ratio significant?
1: I mentioned that we saw $850 billion in investment last year, right, for both new plants as well as grading and so on equipment. Just to put that in comparison, I also refer to the domestic manufacturing gross output number, and that is roughly around 6.3 trillion. Mm -hmm. So if you look at that 850 billion and the 6.3 trillion, really this is almost like the equivalent of a company of 6.3 trillion investing 850 billion or 13% of its revenue in manufacturing capacity and capability. And that to me, that ratio is much more telling than any metric that uses GDP because GDP also has services and other elements that contribute to the overall value of the US economy. So I'd much rather look at the, the ratio versus uh, the domestic manufacturing gross output. And then, as I said, you know, industries, there's no particular industries uh, where you see more um, plants or more equipment. However, the value, of course, of certain plants and certain equipment is much bigger. If you're putting down a semiconductor plant, well, that is a 20 billion value proposition right there, right? So uh, that's why you see when you look at the numbers, probably more or higher dollar numbers in uh, things like semiconductors and even some of the uh, electronic vehicles and electronic vehicle batteries. But in the types of the number of investments and the number of plants, it's really not necessarily driven by one industry as, or the other, as I mentioned earlier.
0: A significant issue is the labor market and the manufacturing industry's future. Can you elaborate on the role automation plays in addressing these labor challenges in reshoring?
1: Well, I think most importantly, they help address the labor cost issue um and it's probably part of why you see those big investment numbers um it's not just an issue of the labor cost per hour by the way it's also the availability of labor Uh, the national association of manufacturers for instance has said that by 2025 they expect 2.1 million open jobs to be go going unfilled. and just by comparison right now i think we're somewhere around 12 or 13 million people active in manufacturing so that's a big chunk of, you know, in addition to that, that will still be uh, open positions. So using automation to try and minimize your dependence on labor will equally be critical. Um, And that's also, frankly, why we keep telling policymakers and other politicians that we meet with that we really don't think reshoring will ever translate into huge manufacturing job increases because the labor pool is just not there.
0: What are the most critical factors and strategic decisions that companies should consider when planning a reshoring initiative, and how can they effectively balance the benefits of reshoring with the opportunities in the global markets?
1: I can tell you that those that have prepared well and made this whole thing a true cross-functional effort and not just a supply chain problem, they typically fared better than companies that rushed into it or left it to supply chain to sort it out. Um, and by the way, one of the reasons why you need a cross functional effort is because it's also important to think through what exactly you'll be bringing back. Should you keep making the entire portfolio? Are there some less profitable products that are just going to be priced out of the market once you apply the new cost structure? So you can approach that typically from, you know, just let's cut the tail, right? Take all the small volume products out of the equation here. But since you're building a new plant, why not take a slightly more sophisticated approach and try to look look at this through a complexity lens? Which of these products add more complexity so that when you finally build the plant, you actually may need less assets. You need less people to operate them and automation may be a lot easier and so on and so on if you take the right products out. But again, that kind of conversation is something that the entire management team need to look into and needs to align around and not just the supply chain people. Reshoring also provides uh, an opportunity to seriously reevaluate how you automate, as I mentioned before, but also how you organize your supply chain, how you deploy your inventory, where and how you build warehousing and logistics, and since you're basically rewiring your supply chain and you're almost inevitably going to be adding costs, it's critical that you look into every opportunity to improve um, to improve your performance. So I'd say you know. Prepare well, make it a cross-functional effort, and think through uh, some of these strategic questions around make versus buy, what's your portfolio, and what's your org going to be like. Think through those as well. Uh, And and maybe one other thing, I guess, that we shouldn't forget. Um, If you pull out of China, but you still want to do business there, make sure that you manage uh, one of those critical stakeholders, the Chinese authorities. Um, The the Chinese government is actually getting a lot more realistic about companies leaving because it's been happening now for a while. And and in fact, initially, they were the the, the ones that moved themselves to Vietnam uh, and other countries to avoid some of the uh, cost increases that they were seeing in their own domestic labor market. Um, But if you're breaking up with any partner, Um, there's still a good way and a bad way to leave. Um, So I think it's important to design a clear communication strategy so that there's some business continuity in the market, whether it's China or any other market or country you're exiting, Uh, and then focus on taking care of relationships with those stakeholders because that'll go a long way to keep that foothold in those markets. Uh, And so actually, there's a number of these things um, that are important and sometimes forgotten. So one of the things we've actually done uh, and developed for our clients, uh, and it's available on our carny.com website, is a uh, reshoring readiness assessment, basically. So you can go through the checklist of, you know what are all the things I need to at least understand or look into before I embark on this journey? I mean, most global companies obviously still see the 1 billion consumers over in China as, as a massive opportunity. And recently there's been sentiments around buying more Chinese, just like we've seen in the US sentiments to buy more American. Um, But I think over time, there's still a big market and it'd be a shame if you leave on such a bad note that you're not able to to come back there and, and sell any of your products anymore.
0: Right. What are the primary challenges companies face when returning manufacturing operations to the United States? And how are they addressing those challenges, particularly in terms of workforce recruitment and supplier ecosystem development?
1: Companies that we talked to that actually have already started restoring wished, as I said, that they had prepared better and thought through more of those challenges, but also that they looked into more of the opportunities. The big two are hiring, building, training, and retaining the workforce. That's number one. And the second one is rebuilding that supplier ecosystem. So we hear about those all the time. And starting with the labor one, um, a lot of companies are looking to come back. And so the pressure on labor availability is only going to increase. It looks like companies are, are really throwing everything at it. They've increased wages, put in hiring and retention incentives, paid vacation, what have you. Or of course, they've also automated where they can to minimize the need for labor. Another interesting fact I thought was uh, several companies also commented that they had to go a lot heavier on full-time versus temps, even though they had a seasonal business, um, because Temp labor force is very difficult to find, even with basic skills, because you're tapping really into the same labor pool that is part of the gig economy. It's probably fair to say that most companies and strategies, in essence, really involve throwing money at the problem. We've also seen companies get creative as to which labor pools or which pools of people, in general, they tap into to try and uh, and find manufacturing talent. So sourcing from non-traditional uh, less tapped talent pools like people with health conditions, impairments, or disabilities, or, or people with a criminal history. Uh, and we've even heard from some of our clients that they're looking into hiring ex Googlers or ex Amazoners because, at almost all the companies that we talk to, uh, saying they have increased their investments in AI and IoT and automation, you'll definitely need a different mix of profiles in your manufacturing workforce to make these plants run. There'll have to be actually a lot less pure blue collar and more tech savvy, digitally native blue collar jobs you'll need to fill, and so some of the folks that used to work with Google and Amazon could potentially be candidates there. Problem number two, uh, the supplier ecosystem. That's an interesting one as well, because a lot of our clients report they're having a hard time finding nearby suppliers that can meet quality standards, which is sort of ironic, because you always hear about it in China's bad quality. Well, guess what? We've actually done a really good job of teaching manufacturing suppliers to make high quality products, so much so that we have a hard time replicating it. To do it, you probably need to significantly invest more into your suppliers here, into your local suppliers, and approach them in a much more strategic fashion rather than just put out an RFP and, and, and see who answers and take the lowest price. It requires collaboration, a uh, different way of working. One example, for instance, uh, some clients that initially were working with their suppliers in the same remote model as they used to work with their supply suppliers in China had to change the way they approached them because they were now really only two hours away by car. So once they started going over there and, and for instance, took some supply chain planning people with them, Uh, you could see the client, the supplier's operations and things started to improve because with that communication comes better understanding and obviously opportunities to improve performance become much more clear.
0: What specific factors and government initiatives do you believe are driving the shift in manufacturing locations from China to other countries, particularly in the context of trade tariffs and sustainability regulations?
1: Well, Many manufacturers had started to move a portion of their volume out of China a while back. And especially if they were supplying to the U.S. market, that started happening before COVID because they were trying to avoid being hit with trade tariffs uh, that were started by the previous administration here in the U.S. So that became sort of the China plus one movement. And now, I guess, more recently, you, you start to see this as the China plus X movement because companies are no longer just moving to other Asian countries, uh, but they're also moving to places like Mexico and, and even the U.S. itself. Some interesting statistics there maybe to share is, um, as part of this reshoring index, been tracking imports from the 14 Asian countries, including China, and China's share versus the 13 other Asian low-cost countries has been coming down gradually. It was somewhere around the low 70s in 2013, and then the first few years, it came down a couple of percentages in total the first five years because China itself started to invest into Vietnam and a few other countries. But then when the U.S. government started to implement import tariffs, that's when China's portion really took a nosedive. And throughout COVID, China's share has continued to go down, and it's now around 45%, so all the way from the low 70s to 45 um, and that in an environment where the total imports of the 14 Asian low-cost countries has actually gone up to $1 trillion, as I mentioned. So there was this initial move just around the corner that happened across the globe, basically. People trying to pull away from China, whether it was to support the U.S. without trade tariffs or even in, uh, for European companies that focused on the European market. Um And as I said, more recently, not all of what China lost went to other Asian low-cost countries. Uh, Mexico has been a big winner, benefiting from USMCA. And also basically, if you want to support Latin America, Mexico is still a pretty decent place to do that. So for the US part, the Mexico saw its import go up uh, by 26% since before COVID. And in fact, already last year, managed to import 400 billion into the US, which was only about 100 billion behind China. And then in this year, Since China's been a little slow uh, and Mexico's been firing on all cylinders, Mexico's imports are now tracking ahead of China's imports into the U.S., so we'll see where that ends up by the end of the year. I'm not really as close to what's happening in other parts of the world, but I do see uh, similar things happening in Europe. Governments are supporting certain industries. Germany, for instance, has something akin akin to the U.S. Chips Act, uh, and companies are moving closer to their ends markets. Although one thing I do notice that's a bit of a difference is that in Europe, there's an additional driver beyond improving resilience, um, and that's the uh, the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, the CSRD. Uh, so that's a law that will require companies to start measuring the emissions of their European footprint in 2024 in order to report on them then as of 2025. Uh, and anything that you bring over, whether it's parts or raw materials from China will somehow result in a hit to that metric. And in addition, Europe is also then putting in place something called the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM. And that dictates that manufacturers with factories outside of the European Union must pay compensation at the border if they want to import products. Uh, And that compensation will be uh, commensurate to the emissions of the factories where the products were made. So... This is all put in place then, obviously, to prevent companies from moving their production elsewhere to just get around the CSRD. Um, so, so that's an added driver that we're already seeing in Europe. And in fact, I understand that similar legislation is in the works in the U.S. So maybe that'll add to the drivers that are already uh, pushing reshoring here in the U.S.
0: So if an organization is considering reshoring, what resources are out there that they could look into?
1: There are several government resources and nonprofit organizations that can help you find your way through the legislative and incentives landscape, and it's quite complicated. <laughs> um, and some of these have even developed total cost of ownership calculators that are available for anyone to use on their website. But I think the the fact that we hear so many clients say that that have already embarked on their journey, that they wish they had been better prepared and had more holistically looked at their whole business model... Uh, makes it clear to me that there's some really strategic questions that also need to be answered. And for that, you'll need a different type of effort and support that that is a bit more in line with the type of support that myself and and my colleagues at Carney provide to our clients.
0: So reshoring isn't just a simple move of factories. It's a major shift in how companies think about shaping their future. Those who plan well and adapt to these changes will likely benefit the most from this new way of doing business. At MHI, we never stop exploring new opportunities to help you take your manufacturing and supply chain operations to the next level of success. Thanks for making us part of your professional development journey.